The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The sermon text for today is from the book of 3 John. So again, that's 3 John. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Good morning. As Stephen said, my name is Nick Whitehead, and I serve alongside our North Pastoral staff overseeing our global outreach ministries here at the North Campus. Prior to that, I served for four years in our all-church global outreach department as I attended Bethlehem College and Seminary, their MDiv program. And then before that, promise I won't go all the way back to the beginning, but before that, my wife and I served in San Jose, Costa Rica for a couple years, and as we were learning and serving there is when we felt a call to pursue further education for pastoral ministry which brought us here. And we thought we were coming for academics and education, and we found a family. We found a home. And so we are thankful and privileged to be a part of this North Campus body, um, to be able to serve and learn alongside brothers and sisters like you. And it's really a privilege to have the opportunity to open the word with you this morning. So brothers and sisters, before we do dive into our word, would, would you please play, pray with me? Lord, we sang it already this morning. You are the merciful God who came in Christ to redeem all who trust in your unfailing grace. And we are asking that our hearts might respond rightly to this reality, that we would hear the call of the kingdom to proclaim to the lost the hope and peace and love and forgiveness found only in Christ. So work now, Lord, by your word to enliven our minds and our hearts to delight in the glorious privilege it is to partner together in advancing the gospel of our merciful Savior. It says, in his name we pray, amen. Have you ever lamented your lack of evangelism? Have you ever been discouraged by how little you share your faith? I certainly have. I certainly have. I must admit that I I frequently become discouraged by my own participation or lack of participation in the Great Commission. I remember a year or so ago, I fell into another one of these slumps. We had recently added two newborn twins to our family, so now we had four children under the age of four. I was taking full-time seminary classes, working part-time, and I felt like I never even talked to unbelievers. I'd go months without even engaging with a lost person. And I was deeply burdened by this. But it happened that in the middle of one of these slumps, I met up with a dear brother in Christ who I'd meet with weekly throughout my time in seminary. 
And during our time together, we actually ended up spending most of that time talking about the opportunities God was giving him to do outreach in his neighborhood, to evangelize the lost, even to share his faith among Muslims. And I look back at that conversation, knowing the discouragement I was feeling, and am just astonished that I did not become jealous or bitter as I listened to this brother and the myriad of opportunities God was giving him. This man was single, no kids, tons of time to go out and engage people with the gospel. But what God did in that moment, as this brother shared with me, and he was not motivated by, uh, to boast in himself, but he was inviting me into what the Lord was doing. But as he shared with me, God just gave me this overwhelming thankfulness to be friends with this man. And not just friends, to be partners with him in the gospel of Christ. Somehow in that moment, I was able to set aside those feelings of discouragement and just rest in the glorious privilege it is to do this great commission task with others. You're not alone in this task. We're not alone in this task, and that's a beautiful thing. Now, in no way this morning am I trying to give us a get-out-of-evangelism-free card. It's not what I'm trying to do. We are called to share our faith. We sang about this. But what we're going to see in our text this morning is that faithful, ongoing partnership with gospel laborers is vital to the advance of the gospel. And not only is it vital to advancing the gospel, it's vital to your own personal spiritual health. And I'm really eager to show you that from our text this morning. So what 3 John does is it empowers us for one very good work. Namely, and this is the main point of the text, that we might support gospel workers in a manner worthy of God. And this morning we're going to unpack this call on our lives by looking at the first eight verses of this short letter. We're going to spend most of our time in verses 5 through 8, but I do believe the introduction of this letter contributes something quite important to the argument. So look with me there. If supporting gospel laborers is the practical call of 3 John, verses 1 through 4 give us the deeper spiritual significance of participating in this action. So let's dive into these verses a little bit. See why John is writing this personal letter to his dear friend Gaius. Verse 1. You're going to notice right away that this is a letter of encouragement. The elder, a.k.a. the apostle John, writes to the beloved Gaius. This is a phrase he repeats over and over again, beloved. And we can't say with certainty who this Gaius is. There's a million Gaiuses in the Roman Empire at this time. But John is clearly pleased with him. John goes on in verse 1 to describe Gaius as one whom he loves in truth. Take note, this is no shallow, superficial love. This is love grounded in the gospel. John loves Gaius deeply because of his camaraderie in the truth of the gospel. And then John's love overflows in verse 2 with a prayer of blessing over Gaius. It was very common in Greco-Roman letters of the first century to see blessings of physical health. But John adds something really interesting to his prayer of blessing. Look at it with me. Verse 2. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Or a more literal translation would say, just as your soul is prospering. John does not just care about Gaius' physical health. In fact, what is of far more importance to him is the state of Gaius' soul. I hope you see this. John is actually asking God to make Gaius' physical health match his soul health. 
I mean, imagine if I prayed that for you this morning. I said, I'm asking God to cause your physical health to reflect the state of your soul. If God granted my petition, would this be a blessing or a curse for you this morning? If your bodily condition in the snap of a finger matched your spiritual condition, would you be in peak physical shape, like ready to run a marathon, hike a mountain, or would you be sick? Would you be dying? It is a worthwhile thing for us to pause and consider whether John's prayer would be a blessing or a curse for us at any given moment. But for Gaius, it is a prayer of blessing because Gaius' soul is, in fact, prospering. And this makes John rejoice. He's ecstatic. Look at verse 3 with me. John says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. And then he reiterates in verse 4, I have no greater joy. This is, my, this is my highest joy to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So John is thrilled because he's received an excellent report from certain Christians who have recently spent time with his dearly beloved Gaius. And the report is that Gaius is walking in the truth of the gospel. Gaius has made the truth his own, not by amending that truth so that it fits with the lifestyle he desires, but by amending his lifestyle so that it accords with the one true gospel. And these brothers have come back to John with this conclusion, that Gaius guy, he walks in the truth. He practices what he preaches. And John is just overjoyed to hear this. Gaius' faithful living, his spiritual flourishing, His obedience to God's commands are just joy-inducing in John. And I'd argue, not only does Gaius' obedience to God produce joy in John, it would have produced joy in Gaius himself. Isn't this what Jesus tells us in John 15? When he says, if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. And these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So God's fullness of joy dwells in those who obey him. So I hope you're leaning in with me this morning and asking, what has Gaius done? What has he specifically done that has brought joy to this old apostle? And what is it that he has done that we might then follow in his footsteps and receive fullness of joy and obedience? Well, verse 5 and the beginning of 6 give us the answer. Here's the specific evidence of Gaius' prospering soul. Look with me there. John praises Gaius with these words. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do and all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. Now I want us to first unpack the what of this verse. What did Gaius do that made John so happy? And then I want to spend some time explaining the who of this verse. To whom was this action done? So first, what has Gaius done that gives evidence of his prospering soul? He's received certain brothers with loving hospitality. Now you might be asking, why are you you saying hospitality? I don't see that word anywhere in the text. Well, look look at the end of verse 5. John says that Gaius' efforts faithfully and lovingly on behalf of these brothers who were strangers to him. See that word, strangers. Now the original Greek word for strangers is xenos, which refers to something foreign or unfamiliar. And all the other Uh, words in the Greek New Testament that use this word xenos or have this word in them have a clear connection to hospitality. For example, the word philo xenos, which would literally translate to something like friend, philo, of strangers, xenos. 
And it's the word we commonly see translated in our Bibles as hospitable. You see it in 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.8, 1 Peter 4.9. So it's not in our English text as hospitable, but what we should see here is that Gaius is described as a friend of strangers. He is hospitable, particularly towards fellow believers. And that's what John is commending Gaius for. These brothers, whoever they are, have come from somewhere else, and Gaius doesn't even know them, but he faithfully and lovingly receives them. We don't know if he lodged them. We don't know if he fed them. Uh, We don't know the exact details. They're not clear, but we can be sure this is more than a warm verbal greeting. It's a demonstration of genuine hospitality, so much so that these guys go back and report of Gaius's love to their home church. It's a big enough deal that they get the church together, and they're like, Gaius, that guy is hospitable, shows love to strangers. Now, the second question is, who did Gaius receive? Who did he show hospitality to? Who are these brothers? Now, of course, we're using the phrase brothers. So the first thing we know about them is they're believers, right? These guys recognize gospel truth and faithful Christian living in Gaius's life. So these are Christians. But second, we see they are travelers. These particular Christians have been many places. They're moving around. They've been with Gaius. Then they're back with John, probably in Ephesus. And then John's encouraging guys to send them to yet another place. So keep on moving, keep on moving. And then in general, we're going to see in a few verses that these travelers have ambitions to go to places where they will find themselves among Gentiles, pagan nations. So these are traveling Christians, but perhaps more important than the fact that they travel is why they travel. What is their reason? These are not just Christians who have the week off work, so they head up to Gaius' hometown to enjoy the local hot springs, and so he hosts them. These guys aren't just staying with Gaius so they can go to the baseball game in the morning. These guys are going out for the sake of the name, and that's why Gaius is receiving them with hospitality and love. They've left their hometowns, their home churches, their home bases for the sake of the name. And in verse 8, we see these guys are workers for the truth. Their labor, their work, their vocation, so to speak, is to preach the gospel, the name of Jesus, the truth of what Jesus has come and done to save sinners and reconcile them to God. So to sum up, these are Christians. They're traveling to different geographical regions with the intent purpose of preaching the gospel, advancing the Christian faith, Just like these people you saw in these videos, these global partners, they're examples of these types of gospel labors. These are the ones we want to send. But before we move on, I want to take a moment to jump down to verse 8. So look with me there and show you one other thing about these gospel workers, who they are. We're going to unpack this verse further in a few minutes, but for now I want you to see one particular phrase. John writes, We ought to support people like these. See those two words? That final phrase could be literally translated as ones of such a kind. It suggests that there are a particular people, a particular subset of people who will fit these characteristics and will be uniquely qualified for this gospel proclaiming work. These are the ones who we are to receive with hospitality as Gaius does and then send out to do gospel work. Now, In many churches and many missions conferences, I've been at a lot of these these things, and urgent appeals are made for essentially any warm-bodied follower of Christ to pack up and go to the nations because the urge is so 
The need is so urgent. Yet I think John's words here to support people of such a kind calls us as a church to not only be concerned with the urgency of the mission, but also with the quality and giftings of those we send. It calls us to slow down, look around, see who among us already has the gifts, the qualifications, the credibility to serve as vocational gospel laborers among the nations. And some of you may be those people right here in our church, pillars of this church, who perhaps, as one member of our church prayed before this morning uh, in the prayer room, that, that some of you might be stirred up to this calling that has never come to your mind before. So, when, when we as a church consider who we might send, when you personally consider who you might give money to or pray for, I think it is right to ask questions like, is this person gifted in evangelism? Are they clear? Are they credible? Are they bold in their communication of the truths of the gospel? Or is this person making mature disciples? Do we see them pouring in to men and women by reading the word with them, counseling them, calling them to pursue holiness and trust in Christ? Or has this person been gifted by God to handle the word rightly, preach with clarity and passion, and equip the saints for the work of ministry? Or is this person gifted in raising up leaders? Got a host of BCS and Northwestern and Bethel professors in here right now. Are they gifted in providing deep theological formation, training future pastors to exegete and communicate God's word and shepherd God's people? I believe those are the types of things these gospel laborers in 3 John are all about. These are the types of Christians Gaius is commended for receiving. So what we've seen in verse 5 and 6 is John singing the praises of Gaius for showing this type of hospitality to traveling gospel laborers. And it proves that he has a prospering soul. He's walking in the truth. He's following the Lord. Gaius's eagerness to welcome these workers reveals what he ultimately values, and that is the advance of the gospel. But after applauding him for his hospitality, John calls Gaius to something more. So look with me at verse 6. John says, you will do well, Gaius, to send them, these gospel laborers, on their journey in a manner worthy of God. Now the phrase, you will do well, essentially introduces a soft exhortation. It's like when a parent says to their child, you will do well to get up to your bedroom before I do and clean it up. That, that's, that, that's, that's not a suggestion. That's a command, right? And that's what John's doing here. John is impressing upon Gaius to insist these laborers as they continue to move forward in their plans to advance the gospel. Now, the word used here for send is used only nine other times in the New Testament. And it's always used in the context of traveling gospel workers being sent out on journeys. And to send in this way, it's so much more than just a, uh, a goodbye at the door or a farewell at the dock. This is a holistic, full-fledged sending. Every time that word is used in the New Testament, it's talking about coming alongside a person with the necess- necessary support they will need to move their mission forward. So in the New Testament, we see sometimes it's providing these workers with food. Sometimes it's hosting them. Sometimes it's arranging companions for them. Sometimes it's giving them money. Sometimes it's even providing the means of travel. So this is a holistic sending. It's not just financial. But the part of verse 6 that really blows me away, I think should blow us all away, is the manner in which John calls Gaius to send them. 
He's to do it in a manner worthy of God. Now, I was trying to wrap my mind around this phrase, worthy of God, and I kept thinking of our common English phrases to treat someone like a king or to treat someone like a queen. And I imagine this scenario, uh, coming home from a long day of work and seeing a delicious spread of my favorite foods on our table made by my wife. And as we sit down to eat, she just is all in on me, asking me good questions, listening to my burdens and my joys and my hopes and my fears. And then after we put our kids to bed, uh, she pulls out this delicious apple crisp, hot, and a couple scoops of vanilla on there. And we're able to engage with each other as we eat this delicious food. And then even before we go to bed, she gives me a foot massage. Now, I, I promise you, the next day I would find someone to tell my wife last night treated me like a king. And what I'd be saying is that she treated me with great honor, far more than I deserve, in a way that, in a manner that royalty deserves. A king would have looked upon that kind of treatment and said, that is fitting. That is fitting. And so we don't use that type of language lightly. And I don't think John uses this phrase, worthy of God, lightly. It's no throwaway term. Those who go out for the name and remain faithful to that task ought, ought to be honored cared for, and generously supported. They ought to be sent in a manner fitting to their noble calling. They should have no needs, no lack. But what, why this type of treatment for them? What's so special about these guys, these brothers? Well, John gives us two main reasons why these guys in particular are worthy of highest support. Look with me at verse 7. First, these ministers have the right motivation. They've gone out for the sake of the name. Now, we could spend hours talking about the, the times in the Bible that use this phrase, for the sake of the name, or for God's name's sake. The Old Testament is littered with this language because it sums up God's primary motivation for every single thing that he does. It's all to make much of him. But when we get to the New Testament, something amazing happens. That name... The name of God to whom all glory is due gets shared with the Messiah, the God-man who John prayed to this morning, the one who comes to die and save sinners. And Hebrews 1.4 tells us this, that the Son of God has inherited a name more excellent than the angels. And Philippians 2 echoes the supremacy of Jesus' name when it says, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the name. That's the name we're talking about. That's the name that motivates these missionaries. That fuels their going out and it fuels their proclamation. It's the same name and it's the same message that should fuel our intentionality to share with our neighbors and our coworkers. May we not be ashamed of this name. May we not be ashamed of this gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And it's the only missionary motivation worthy of our support, worthy of formal partnership. Not a person's desire to live in interesting or exotic places. Not a person's desire to uh, set up a water filtration system in an impoverished community. Now, those things can be good things, but they are not the primary missionary motivation Christians send out missionaries not to fix the world's problems, not to decrease poverty. We send out laborers because we believe that it is only in hearing and believing in the name of Jesus that one can be saved 
from sin and reconciled to this holy God we sang to this morning. But John gives us another reason, another motivation to support traveling preachers. Look again at the end of verse 7. They've gone out accepting nothing from the Gentiles. So these preachers have resolved to receive no payment from unbelieving Gentiles to whom they will preach. Now it was common in those days for philosophers, uh, preachers of new ideas to go out into towns and gather an audience of students and then charge them money so that they might hear this new idea or this new philosophy they would have. It is not to be so among gospel laborers. They are to present this gospel free of charge, no price. And so what John is doing here is begging the question, who's going to provide for these laborers? Should the pagans pay for the gospel to be preached to them? By no means. Instead, the church, the church is to provide the means for these preachers to minister to the lost. So what we see in verse 6 and 7 is John commanding Gaius to send out gospel laborers for two reasons. First, their motivation is worthy. And second, their work depends on the support of other Christians. Now, many of you are well aware that this type of investment in laborers like this can have little payoff for oneself. I mean, think about it. These gospel laborers who you saw in this video, they come and go from our midst. And when they come to us, if we respond like Gaius, as so many of you have, we will open up our homes to them and we will let them borrow our cars, maybe even our vacation cabins at the lake. And, and as we hear of their ministry and their faithfulness to the gospel, we're going to open up our wallets, maybe our checkbooks. Maybe for some of us, we're going to dip into our savings accounts. And then they're just going to leave again. They're just going to leave. And we won't get to reap the relational payoff that we would normally expect when we invest time and resource, resources in someone's life like this. But here's what's so beautiful about Third John. John gives us the payoff. The motivation for gospel partnership. It comes at the end of verse 8. Look with me. John stops talking to just Gaius. And he opens up his words here so that everyone who is a Christian would hear them. And he says, we ought to support people like these. Why? So that we may be fellow workers for the truth. The great payoff of supporting gospel labors is that the truth of the gospel is advanced through their work. And we get credited as co-laborers. You've heard it said, you are what you eat. Well, John is saying to us in verse 8, you are what you support. In other words, you support a faithful gospel laborer, you are doing the work he or she is doing. What they do is credited to your account. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. It takes me back to that moment, sitting there with my brother in that room who was doing so much evangelistic work And I get to pray with him and encourage him. And by doing so, participate with him in gospel advance. By God's design, the body of Christ works together for the gospel. Some going, some supporting, and all who participate are credited as workers for the truth. However, this means we must be careful. I can't go on without giving you this warning because the negative is also true. If we endorse someone or some ministry that is straying from the gospel in word and deed, we're guilty of laboring in that same vein. In fact, that's exactly what John warns us against in his second letter when he says, if anyone comes to you 
and does not bring the teaching of Christ, do not receive them into your house or give them any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. John is saying that even in welcoming a person who does not teach in line with the gospel is to participate in his wicked works. So we must be discerning. We must be discerning as we consider who we partner with, who we pray for, who we give money to. But nonetheless, it is a great calling to co-labor with faithful, truth-proclaiming gospel laborers. And we're going to get credited for the work they do. Now, before we end, I want to ask this. Are you holding back from this type of humble, generous, joyful giving and partnering with those who go out for the sake of the name, who seek the flourishing of Jesus' church among the nations? I want you to take a look with me really quick at verse 9. Not preaching the rest of this book, but verse 9 is something I want to point out. It's interesting to realize that in the second half of this letter— John finds another guy to talk about. His name is Diotrephes, and he has acted in the exact opposite manner as Gaius has. He has not received and supported these same traveling Christians, and he's actually excommunicated people in his own church who have done so. And the reason for it we see is in the middle of verse 9. Why has Diotrephes acted like this? It's because he liked to put himself first. His priorities were messed up. They were all disordered. Diotrephes' love of self turned him into an enemy of gospel advance. So beware. Beware of disordered priorities. We want to avoid Diotrephes' mistakes here. There may be some here this morning who are thinking, you know, I just can't afford to give to a missionary or or even to give to the church right now because I'm in debt or I'm still in school, or I just got into the workforce, or I just lost my job, or I just had my first child, whatever it might be. These are all worthy gospel investments to consider, uh, personal investments to consider and discern, and they require great financial wisdom. But I encourage you, consider how God might be inviting you to make a far greater investment, far greater investment than any of those, an investment for his kingdom, and it comes with eternal payoff for you. Let me give you an example of the payoff for you. This is Philippians 4.17. We're going to get there in a few months as we work through this sweet letter from Paul. Paul, the missionary, writes to some of his own supporters, the Philippian church, and he says this about their giving. It's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul is saying to the Philippians, I don't just want your money so that my needs get satisfied. I'm eager to see what kind of gospel fruit comes out of this partnership, which is going to be credited to your account. Consider the gospel fruit that would increase to your credit if you were to give some small portion of your time, your labors, your resources, your energy to support a gospel worker, maybe even one of these global partners that we saw this morning. And imagine, imagine the fruit, the credit that you will get to enjoy Imagine getting to heaven and meeting real people from the nations, perhaps, who will come and they will thank you. Not because you were there, not because you shared the gospel with them, but because you generously gave to a gospel laborer who shared the good news of Christ with them and brought them in to the kingdom of light. That should make any of us rejoice and be eager to participate. Stephen mentioned it this morning, but... 
17% of every dollar that you give to this church contributes to our global outreach efforts. Some of you may not even be aware that you are already partnering in this type of gospel advance. And when you give to this church, it is a strategic investment in advancing the gospel. And you will see someday the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, I also know that there are many in this room who are not struggling with giving, but have generously invested in missionaries for numerous years. You've put your money where your heart is. And I praise God for you. Yet I know it can be really easy to become passive in our partnerships with those who are advancing the gospel, especially in an era when our money can just get pulled straight out of our bank accounts and sent somewhere without us really even thinking twice about it. So I encourage you this morning to reconsider your current gospel partnerships that you are investing in and ask, what can I do to once again encourage and support this worker that the gospel might then be further advanced through their ministry? Perhaps it means adding them to your daily prayer times. Maybe it is upping your giving to them. Maybe it means reaching out with a word of encouragement. And I'll tell you this, maybe it's reminding them of the motivation for which they were sent out. Our labors need to remember. There's a lot of distractions, just like Diotrephes. Our priorities can get disordered, and it can be the same for our gospel labors. So maybe it's reminding them that they've been sent out for the sake of the name, the preaching of the word, the establishing of the church, and helping them guide them back to true north in that regard. How can you help? There are so many needs. I've got a, one example, a global partner right now who reached out in their news, newsletter saying, we need space for eight to nine of us in the Twin Cities so we can celebrate Thanksgiving over the Thanksgiving weekend. Might there be some, someone in this room who has a house that they're going away for Thanksgiving that can help in such a practical way as this to encourage our workers. So brothers and sisters, as we, as we close this morning, I encourage you, tune your hearts to delight in the glorious reality of gospel partnerships. Your joy just like John's joy, can be maximized through supporting others in their advance of the gospel. We don't give begrudgingly. This is no burden, but rather it's an integral way in which we advance the gospel. And when our hearts become attuned to this reality, when we're walking in the truth like Gaius, when our desire to make much of Jesus outweighs our desire to make much of self, then we're just going to humbly and freely and generously give to those who go out for the sake of the name. And brothers and sisters, the best is yet to come. We're going to reap eternal heavenly reward for our genuine co-laboring and advancing the greatest cause in the universe. And I don't want you to miss out on that. So let me pray to that end. Lord, you are infinite and your purposes for salvation are global to the ends of the earth. And we are finite we feel it every day. We're incapable of doing all that you require of us in the Great Commission. So Lord, we thank you for the beauty and rest that comes with gospel partnerships. We thank you that we do not go at this task alone. So use us, Lord, as co-laborers of the gospel, fellow workers for the truth, for the glory of Christ, as we eagerly seek the fruit that increases to our credit. We pray this in the name above all other names, the name that is worthy of our sending and our going. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.